This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 170. Hey there, folks. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Each week, I bring a piece of my fiction to you and share the latest in my writing endeavors. So let's get started. Here is this week's story. Today, I'm bringing you Chapter 28 in my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, don't start here. Go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Our heroes in the Metamore City Police Department are slowly putting the pieces together around the recent string of murder kidnappings. Morgan found a set of victims who all had fake vampire bites, whose blood had actually been drained through an artery near the groin. Kate examined these bodies with her magic and found that they had been sacrificed as a source of death mana, probably storing up power for some kind of arcane ritual. Michael dug into the police records and found a large number of additional victims from all over the city, including a small subset who had been confined and tortured for weeks instead of being sacrificed quickly. A little over an hour ago, Kate and her new partner, Lizzie, inspected the latest of the victims, a Kumari prostitute who worked for the syndicate. Because the body was so fresh, Kate was able to perform an augury on it. In her vision, they saw one of the kidnappers— a former classmate of Lizzie's, named Nevin Ardlido. He seemed to be telling the woman, The vampire prince will learn fear soon enough. Don't worry, little whore. Your master will pay for what he has done to you. Your sacrifice will feed the fire of his destruction. This reinforced SID's working theory of the case, which is that the kidnappings are being carried out by the new criminal organization known as the White. Now, the forensic investigation team needs to take custody of the body, but Sunset is still hours away, so Morgan can't go to the crime scene herself. In her place, she is sending Lisa, the junior medical examiner who originally missed the fact that the vampire bites were fake. Also coming along are Michael, whose boss in Homicide has been shutting him out of the case, and Pamela Nightshade, a telepath who uses her ESP abilities to read bodies and other physical evidence. Meanwhile, Kate and Lizzie are back at Justice Tower, waiting for a warrant to search Nevin's house for further evidence. The Lost and the Least A novel of Metamore City Written in red by Chris Lester. Chapter 28 Michael paced carefully around the edges of the Soulshore crime scene, a roll of evidence bags in one hand and a pair of tweezers in the other. He'd been working for an hour now, with little to show for it. It had taken less than a minute for the coroner team to conclude that the body had been dumped here, 
but the details of how, when, and by whom were proving much thornier. The murderers had not lingered here for long, and had left correspondingly little evidence, apart from the body itself. The deputy medical examiner, Lisa Cheng, was looking similarly peeved. She rose from her crouch beside the body, stripping off her nitrile gloves. You'd think they would at least have left a set of footprints, she said. I'm guessing they just dumped her out of the back of their skimmer, Michael said. What's the lividity look like? Same as all the others, Lisa said. There's not much blood left in her, and what there is pooled in the legs. She sighed forcefully and shook her head. Hung her up and drained her out like a prize hog. She gestured at the dead woman's groin. They tapped the femoral artery, just like before. Damn it, I can't believe I missed that. Michael straightened up from his crouching search and looked at her. No one's blaming you, Lisa. We all blew it on these cases. We saw what they menaced to see. I know, I know. Lisa took off her cat's eye glasses and rubbed the bridge of her nose. Well, this time I've got swabs from around the phony bite marks. If the attackers left any DNA on her when they rigged this stunt, we should see it. Thank Eli for SID's operating budget, Michael said. No shit. Lisa arched her back and stretched. Well, I've done everything I can do here without moving the body. You about done? Michael looked down at the ground and nodded absently. Yeah, there wasn't much here to begin with. Other than Kate's handiwork, of course. He gestured at the interlocking circles of colored sand that formed the remains of the augury spell. Wish Morgan had told her to wait for us, Lisa said sourly. I guess S.I.D. doesn't have time for things like that. She gestured toward the coroner's van. Ready to wake the spooky? Sure. Michael followed her back to the van, where they opened the rear doors. Pamela Nightshade sat cross-legged on the floor of the van, her back straight, her eyes closed in meditation. A howling wind blew in off the lake, and her eyelids fluttered. You're up, Pammy, Lisa said. She spoke the words with uncharacteristic quiet, as if she'd just walked into a library. Pamela's eyes slowly opened. She focused her attention solely on the crime scene ahead of her. I'm ready, she said. She rose slowly, a little wobbly from sitting in that position for the last hour. Michael helped her climb down, then followed her back over to the body. Lisa stayed with the van, where she started prepping the bag and gurney they would use to move the body. Pamela knelt at the dead woman's side, looking up at her face with a distant, troubled expression. After a moment, her eyes flicked over to Michael. She nodded. Michael took out his phone, opened the video recorder, and trained it on Pamela. The Esper would need skin-to-skin -skin contact in order to attempt a reading on the body, which would necessarily leave some of her DNA behind. Michael would document exactly where and when Pamela had touched the body, so they could take this into account during the autopsy. Michael tapped the button to start recording. We're a go. Pamela turned her attention back to the body. She placed her palm over the woman's face, then closed her eyes. Michael couldn't sense anything happening, but he saw Pamela's back go rigid as her breath caught in her throat. After half a minute or so, she started to breathe again, fast and shallow. 
She remained in that position for nearly six minutes. Then her hand fell back to her side, and she slumped down and put her forehead on her knees. She gasped a long, ragged breath, then slowly let it out. Michael turned off the camera and went to her side. Pamela, are you all right? What did you see? It took her a few seconds to answer, as if she were dragging herself out of a dream. Or a nightmare. Gods, she whispered. Fucking gods. Michael tried to parse this. Did you see one of them, then? Pamela looked up at him, her expression disoriented. What? One of the gods, the Pantheon. Did you see them? What? Um, no. No. She shook her head weakly. I saw how she died. Hang on. Michael switched the camera back on. Okay, go. Pamela rubbed her face with both hands, taking another shaky breath. There was some... some kind of ritual magic. There was an altar, um, with this black cloth, and there was this symbol. She felt around in her pockets for her field journal, found it, and pulled it out with shaking hands. Michael handed her a pen. Slowly, carefully, Pamela drew the figure. An arch, a key, a skull missing its lower jaw, a chain. She held it up for Michael and the camera. This symbol was on the altar. They were someplace dark, all stone, maybe underground. It had this big, round-like, arched ceiling. They had her chained up, and uh, her blood was spilling out into this big set of ritual markings they laid out on the floor. The markings were glowing with this, this awful red light. They were wearing black robes and chanting something. I couldn't tell what they were saying. How many of them were there? Michael asked. Six that I saw. Sorry, they were all wearing these big hoods, so I couldn't see faces or body types or anything. That's okay, you did great, Michael said. Did you see anything else? Pamela shook her head. No, it's, um, it's not like an augury. I can't control what I see. I just get the the strongest impressions that are attached to the body. Usually it's the time when they were the most afraid. She wrapped her arms around herself and shivered. She knew what they were doing to her. They made sure she knew. They wanted her to know that she was dying and alone and no one was going to save her. She was terrified. Her face screwed up in concentration. And it's so strange. There was this one thought that kept repeating in her mind over and over. It was just this one phrase, a, a phrase in her own language. Could you tell what it meant? Michael asked. No, that's the strange thing. Normally, if I pick up on thoughts, I understand them the way the person understands them. But this phrase, it was like um, an idiom. Like, it doesn't make any sense, literally, but there's a context to it that has a whole story behind it. Like if we said the three gates, Michael said. It was Metamore's shorthand for the battle where the curse of Metamore had been laid, the battle where they had defeated the dark wizard Nasage and set Metamore on its long path to greatness. Exactly, 
Pamela said. Only she wasn't thinking about the context, she was just thinking about the shorthand. Michael nodded. What was the phrase? It sounded like Zun Kun Gui Mat? The pitch of Pamela's voice rose and fell in an approximation of the Kumari tonal language. By now, Lisa was coming over, pushing the gurney ahead of her. What was that? she asked. Pamela looked at her and repeated the phrase. Lisa frowned and thought. After a moment, her expression cleared. Zun Kun Gui Mat? she asked, slightly varying the tones from what Pamela had attempted. Yes, that was it, Pamela said. You know what it means? Yeah, it's a big part of Eastern folklore. The Forest of the Lost. Michael turned the camera in Lisa's direction. What is it? he asked. Lisa grimaced at having the camera pointed at her, but then she turned her attention back to Pamela. In most of the Eastern cultures, it's said that your ghost goes to join your ancestors when you die. They live together in a big house. Sometimes it's on a mountain, sometimes it's in a cave, sometimes it's on an island way out to sea. Wherever it is, it's hard to get to. Your spirit needs help on the journey. Lisa's voice grew more animated as she spoke. Michael got the sense that this was bringing up memories she hadn't thought of in a long time. Let me guess, he said. If your ghost doesn't complete the journey successfully, you end up in some place called the Forest of the Lost. Exactly, Lisa said. It's a dark, threatening place, where your spirit can wander forever, never finding rest. That's why we burn incense for our dead, and write death scrolls with the names of our ancestors and bury them with the body. We're leaving markers for the ghost to find their way home, so they won't get lost. Pamela nodded slowly. So she was afraid her spirit was going to be lost, because she didn't have anyone to do the funeral rites for her. Lisa nodded. That would make sense, yeah. Michael looked sadly at the body. She was probably right. Why would someone do that? Pamela asked. Her voice was thick with grief and anger. Even if you're sick enough to use people for mana, what possible purpose is there in making someone so... so tormented and afraid? I don't know, Michael said slowly. But I think if we can figure it out, we'll be a lot closer to understanding what they're doing and why. Lizzie was waiting for her when Kate arrived at SID headquarters. The leopard morph paced in the lobby, her tail lashing. She kept one eye on the door and the other on her phone, which chimed with three text message notifications in the time it took Kate to walk from the lift to the reception desk. How's it looking? Kate asked. She headed straight back to the offices, and Lizzie followed her. The judge is reviewing the evidence, Lizzie said. D.A. Schubert is going to text me as soon as we have the warrant. Kate threw a surprised look at her partner. What, personally? Lizzie shrugged uncomfortably. He's a friend of the family. He and Mum shared a common room at Chisholm. Kate whistled and kept walking. Well, if it gets us a warrant faster, I say milk that connection for all it's worth. What else? Captain Shaw says we have authorization to raid Nevin's house as soon as the warrant goes through. Patrol Services is moving people into position for a cordon in case he tries to run for it. I have traffic enforcement checking cameras for his vehicle 
and aerial units watching his house and his office. Oh, and Lieutenant Jaguer's SWAT team is loading an assault shuttle on the roof. Good, Kate said. Let's hit the armory before the action starts. They spent a few minutes picking out bulletproof vests, helmets, and other tactical gear for the impending raid. Lizzie's phone continued to chime intermittently, passing on incremental updates from their allies. By the time she had adjusted her vest to her satisfaction, Kate had gotten so used to the sound that she was disoriented when a message chime came from her own pocket. She pulled out the phone and looked at it. It was a message from Morgan. We have new information from the Soulshore body, Morgan said. You're going to want to watch this. The message was followed by a link to a video recording. Kate opened the link and pushed play. The woman who popped up on the screen was one of Morgan's assistants, a psychic reader named Pamela Nightshade. Kate had met her a few times at police functions, and saw her at the morgue from time to time for work, but Pamela was a private person, and Kate didn't know much about her. She watched the video, listening carefully to Pamela's report. At first, Kate was irritated that Morgan had sent another reader to duplicate the augury Kate had already done. As she listened to what Pamela described, however, her annoyance quickly gave way to confusion. Pamela's reading had revealed critical details that Kate's had missed, such as the ritual casting circle, the number of accomplices, and that strange symbol with the skull and arch. Even more disturbing, some of the details in Kate's vision were actually in conflict with Pamela's. Kate had seen the woman's blood being drained into a jar, with only one or two people present, while Pamela's vision sounded more like what Kate would have expected from a ritual sacrifice. And Pamela's had had no reference to the vampire prince or the syndicate. Lizzie had noticed the discrepancies, too. She frowned over Kate's shoulder as the video ended. That doesn't make any sense. Why would the two readings be so different? Kate shrugged and put her phone away. Well, a lot of things can interfere with an augury. That's why they aren't admissible in court. Still, though, this isn't just about missing information. Both visions were detailed, and the details don't match. That doesn't sound like something that could be caused by random interference. Kate frowned. No, it doesn't. Lizzie's phone chimed again. We've got it, she said, her voice taut with sudden excitement. Kate felt a little rush of adrenaline, like a hunter who caught sight of her prey. Let's blaze, she said. They ran for the express lift and rode it up to the landing pads on the roof. Lieutenant Jaguer met them as they approached. She was an athletic and fierce-looking woman, only a few centimeters shorter than Kate, with a patrician nose and a strong chin. Dark eyes gleamed between crow's feet that owed less to the years than to the grueling work that had filled them. Her russet brown hair was braided tightly into a bun that left not a single strand loose. Her black battle dress looked like the photo-negative of a Lightbringer's combat uniform, and equally spotless. Jaguer smiled grimly as they approached. She gave Kate a sharp nod, then turned around and fell into step beside them. My team's ready, she said. Do we hit the house now or wait for the skag to show himself? Get in position and then hold, Kate said. I want boots on the ground in thirty seconds when he pops out from whatever rock he crawled under. Suits me, Jaguar said. You want snipers in place around the house? Flash. 
the woman without a face reappeared again in Kate's perfect memory. She stumbled, caught herself, and kept walking. She thought of the dead woman by the docks and gritted her teeth, stealing her resolve. Do it, she said, but we want him alive for questioning if we can manage it. One man didn't do this alone. We need to know who helped him. Copy that. They had reached the assault shuttle now, and Jaguar helped Kate and Lizzie aboard. They all put on helmets and strapped themselves in alongside the men and women of Jaguar's assault team. Jaguar's voice crackled in the helmet-mounted speakers. Set course for the objective, she told the pilot. Stay above the cloud cover. Copy, Lieutenant, the pilot said. Then the assault shuttle lurched, the whine of its engines grew to a roar, and they rose away from Justice Tower and into the brooding gray sky. And that's the end of Chapter 28. Come back next time, when Jared gets a surprising visit from his captor, and Morgan holds a risky meeting with a fellow vampire. F. Scott Fitzgerald said, All good writing is swimming underwater and holding your breath. So, put on your bathing suits, take a deep breath, and let's dive into my latest writing endeavors. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 3,605 words this week, over the course of 5.25 hours, for an average writing speed of 687 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 56 days without breaking my chain. Homecoming is now up to Chapter 10, and nearly 25,000 words. John and Kate have just discovered the key source of conflict in the story, and now they have to figure out what to do about it. I wasn't planning on this being another novel, but it looks like that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm not sure how long it'll be, but I'm guessing it will be in the neighborhood of 80 to 100,000 words. I've been working on the story for two months now, so if I can keep going at this pace, in another six months I'll have finished a new book. Looking back at the month of November, I wrote a total of 18,651 words in 22 days, averaging 848 words per day. That's my highest monthly total since September of 2017, and it ranks 18th out of 43 months since I started this podcast. Compared to October, my word count increased by 48%, and my writing time increased by 33%. Over on the Patreon campaign, I'm about to order my annual holiday cards for my patrons. If you're a patron and you'd like to receive a card, go to your profile in the settings menu and make sure that your current address is listed there. I'll be getting them printed in the next week or so, with a plan to get them all sent out by Christmas. And now, the feedback. Leo writes, Hey Chris, I took a break from your podcast and came back to find that the lost and the least was complete. What joy! I wanted to share that I love how central your records geeks are to the plotline. Being in a field that focuses on the information management of our cultural history, museums, archives, libraries, I was happy to see how honored Silas was in the community for being an archivist. The municipal archives are meant to keep a record of the city corporate records, 
to provide transparency to the public and accountability to municipal affairs, much like how Silas's role is described in this book. And then Kate going straight to the library right after? What fun. Hey, Leo. It's true, one of the most important functions in a culture is what you might call institutional memory. Somebody has to know who owns what, who owes what to whom, who's married, who's born and died and related to who else. Information like that keeps a community honest and keeps them bound together. It's no accident that in the old days, records like that were kept by the parish church. Keeping records and keeping rituals are responsibilities that grew up close together. In the modern era, of course, we've professionalized this sort of record-keeping, entrusting it to officers of the government. But for folks like Callie, who work outside the law, that isn't an option. So Silas acts like the old parish priests, keeping the record of all the covenants between the people and his flock. And if you sin against another member of the congregation, you can best believe that Silas will bring the wrath of God down upon you. Leo goes on to say, I just wanted to share my enthusiasm about my particular branch of geek having such a pivotal spotlight in your novel. It's nice to feel represented, and not just in the storylines featuring the androgynes. Being an effeminate trans man, I walk the middle of the false binary. Keep it up, and do take care of yourself as you navigate grief and burnout. I'm not sure if you're still struggling, but I hear you and see your pain. Be gentle with yourself as you process it, just as Kate was advised while her PTSD manifest. A Canadian fan, Leo. Thanks again, Leo. I feel like I've pretty well worked through the grief and burnout now, and I'm back to a consistent daily writing output. It was a long road, but it feels great to be back, and I appreciate all the patience and support you folks gave me while I was working through it. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.